Welcome to the Midwest Church Planting Project, where we connect you with local church planters to learn about life and leadership here in the passive-aggressive Midwest. I'm your host, Davis Johnson. Well, three or four years ago, I took a class that revolutionized the way I read the Bible. The class was taught by the guest of today's episode, Chris Wachter, the lead pastor of Hiawatha Church here in South Minneapolis, and it was engaging the topic of biblical theology. And at that point, I was becoming familiar with various forms of interpretation, but much of the Bible's content still seemed closed off to me or difficult, if not impossible, to understand. Chris's class, though, focused specifically on the ways that the Bible tells one unified story, and therefore we as readers can understand that story best by learning the landscape of the Bible. And one of the ways to best do this is to ask, how does the Bible read the Bible? How does the full revelation of who Jesus is change the way we understand the text? Questions like these unfolded the Bible for me like a rose. And I'm stoked that Chris is going to be our subject expert on this topic for the podcast because this isn't just a theory for Chris. It moves beyond the way he interprets the Bible and into the way he interprets his entire life and ministry. I'm excited for you to see that. So let's go there now. Well, very so, good. I am. Uh, yeah. I'm here with Chris Wachter, the lead pastor of Hiawatha Church in South Minneapolis, my hood. So, welcome, Chris. That's right. Thanks, Davis. Hey, glad you're here. Uh, why don't we get things started by just uh, hearing from you about when you knew you were called to be a church planter? Yeah. Well, certainly not a day. There was not a day, and no even light not, not, even not really a season. Yeah, it was. Um, I like to say very circumstantial because uh, I think the calling. My calling was, I think it was internal and subjective. I think, you know, God does do that for people. And certainly for me, it was something I did kind of want, um, but not right away. I mean, when I was doing, when I was interning at Hope, you know, way back, I think there was a context there that God used to, uh, to call me, meaning he just used his people. You know, he used people that saw, I think, uh, skills or abilities or talents or gifts, I guess is the best word for it, but in me that I didn't see. You know, so my calling was very circumstantial. It lined up, you know, just really well with what I was doing in seminary. I was finishing that. I did an internship at Hope, you know, and Hope had just this great vision to to plant churches that I was, uh, I was loving. It was new to me though. I mean, the idea of being a a lead pastor or a church planner, especially was pretty foreign. So it's kind of learning the lingo and everything like that. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, long story short, I think it was just, uh, you know, talking with my, uh, just a mentor and supervisor and, um, brother, Steve Treichler, lead pastor at, at Hope, uh, still to this day, just, a um, a dear friend and, uh, and mentor of mine to look in my eyes and to say, Chris, I think you need to do this, hmm. um, was, I think that was the voice of God and awesome. something I, I didn't follow, you know, right away and <laughs> felt like, uh, no, I, I don't. Yeah. Uh, is actually, I remember thinking about preaching every week and thinking, um, I enjoy preaching, but I think I've got about three sermons in my back pocket and then I'm kind of done. You know, <laughs> like I don't I've got nothing else to say. Like what else do you say? And which later becomes a big part of my story with, um, some theological stuff that maybe will come up later. But, yeah. um, I remember that being, uh, and I was pretty young. I was maybe 26 at that point, uh, roughly. I forget exactly how old I was cause I planted at 28. So it might've been more like you know, 25 or something like that. But he was just seeing things that, and other people too, like my wife and friends that would say, Hey, I would follow you if you planted a church. And, um, and I know that guys have different, you know, that's not necessarily the the way it happens for everybody, you know, but for me, that was just how it happened. And I think to be in a church that looked at you and, and kind of gave you kind of this well-rounded view of, 
who you were and what your gifts were, what they weren't, but then to have the courage to say, I think, I think this is really what God wants you to do. And I think these are your gifts, mm-hmm. be a good steward. Uh, and then later I just realized he was right, you know? So, um, so yeah, we planted out of hope in 2006, uh, with about 25 people from the church and, but calling for me, that's a, that's a huge thing. I talked to a lot of people about as a pastor now is uh, it's, it's very common for people. Not that this is entirely wrong, but to go like to your prayer closet, so to speak, you know, or just kind of on your bed at night or just subjectively to ask the question of God, what should I do with my life and who am I? And without any kind of consult of, of the church, the body of Christ on earth, you know, and so it's like we're going, it's like we're going to God and, and there's good motive there and God can certainly speak personally, right? And and subjectively, but uh, we kind of forego this, you know, huge means of grace that he's given his people, which mm-hmm. is his body on earth, the church. And so to not ask other brothers and sisters, what do you think is, um, it's it's not very common. And I think people just, if they have not that much of a developed theology of church, you know, especially that's just not going to be there. And yeah. so try as a pastor, try to help people, you know, ask, cause you think about calling vocationally or whatever, just the will of God stuff, ask your pastors, ask a friend, you know, who's mature in the faith and, um, and then pray and then look at what you want to do too and factor that in. But don't forget to ask the people of God. Yeah. You know, that's, that, that needs to happen. Yeah, certainly. So, very helpful. But, and, and thinking back on that time, that season for you, what are some of the things that went into your development from that moment that you decided, maybe it wasn't a moment again, uh, more of a process of you realizing you were going to be a church planter. How did you develop then to become the, the pastor, the planter of Hiawatha Church leading into 2006? What are some of the things that sure. caused your development? Um, a couple of internships. So I went to seminary at Bethel here in St. Paul. Uh, for four years, got a Master of Divinity, which was very good. Before that, I interned at Hope in their first ever LDI year. So, wow, you know, people that are year. currently doing LDI yeah, or, or whatever are going to. I mean, yeah, I was back in 2001. It was, there were no treks at that point. It was just this dream, I think, you know. And yeah. I remember hearing as a college student, as a senior, thinking about what, what I want to do with my life. And hearing that option was just very intriguing. And, um, yeah, one of the best decisions I probably ever made, honestly, uh-huh. you know, outside of marrying my wife and following Christ, of course, and maybe some other things, but it's right up there, you know? And so, yeah, that, that was huge exposure to theology, but I think just like church ministry, you know, and, and then applying what I was learning in seminary kind of in real time, like just boots on the ground, you know, just really raw stuff with counseling and teaching and mm-hmm. stuff and making a lot of mistakes and learning from them. Uh, just that was my story really for years, yeah. kind of not just during the internship, but post that during seminary and stuff. But there's, there was shaping there, I would say. Um, but I was still really insecure. I was, I mean, super young and it, I think stuff just changes with time. I think God's grace is just in, um, using not that refined of people, you know, and not that great of people, uh, to do great things. So it's very clear that it's him and not us. And that's, that continues to be my story, honestly, but especially in the early years, um, I look back and think, I don't know what hope, I don't know what Steve was thinking, honestly, when he, you know, kind of select or just invited me to be an elder and then a church planner. But, you know, I think there's just a lot of humility, a lot of grace, uh, in the thought of that still wow. to, to this day. So, yeah, but. And, yeah. and describe for us now what Hiawatha looks like, kind of what the people are like, what it's like to minister in South Minneapolis. If you think there's any unique qualities with that, that context, what, what is it like? 
Yeah, I mean, in one sense, we're just like any church, you know, like people ask that. I say there's dead people here that need a resurrection, like mm-hmm. anywhere in the world, you know. I don't care That's if right. your culture is churched or not or reached or not, whatever that means. There's just dead people, you know, that need to need to be made alive. Mm-hmm. And so in, in one sense, when we planted, I didn't, you know, I didn't come in or any of us on the team of, of planters, uh, but I didn't come in thinking, I want to give a new kind of church to South Minneapolis, you know, and in one sense, there may have been some truth to that eventually with how we looked and the type of biblical centeredness, Bible centeredness that we brought to the area. But that wasn't our goal. We just wanted to kind of join in with what God is already doing and to not be novel or new, but to be old and biblical and traditional in how we, in how we did things, which may look, have looked new eventually to a lot of people who were unchurched and eventually joined our church. But in our eyes, it wasn't like, let's be novel or new. And so, it, so in one sense, that needs to be said. Um, in another sense, we're uh, kind of a neighborhoody church, you know, we're, uh, we're embedded in this small corner in South Minneapolis, in this old building we received. Another kind of cool story that I don't know if I quite have time for today, but we, we got this building for not free, but cheap. Uh, it was given to Hope ultimately, but then to us as a church planning team, um, that total God thing. I mean, it was amazing to see. That's that's another one of the circumstantial things I was mentioning before, mm. to have that line up so well uh, with in a neighborhood that Letha and I love dearly and we're feeling, feeling called to live, uh, and a building that we got married in, which is another kind of cool thing. Wow, that full circle. Totally, yeah, yeah, which no reason why we would have wanted that building. We just... It was cheap, and we couldn't get married at Hope because they were renting space at the U of M campus, and they didn't allow weddings. And we just picked up a Converge phone book, our <laughs> denomination's phone book, and and looked around the city and picked that one. And of course, it was God's design, and He didn't. It's just so so much grace in that because He didn't have to do that, you know. But looking back, it's just cool to see that God had this deeper plan than than anything we're ever realizing for us personally, just to be kind of embedded, invested in that neighborhood. So, um, but it's a small little kind of medium sized church building. We're about 350 people big now, you know, and a couple of services and just kind of trying to think creatively about how to grow. Cause we're kind of maxed out, you know, but, um, we love it. Very intellectual neighborhood, very spiritual, but in all the wrong ways, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of functional witchcraft stuff, earth worship stuff happening. And there's a lot of witches in our in our city, all around the, all around the city because of the mix of green space and urban nests, you know, and stuff. And um, there are covens in our city at a higher rate than a lot of other cities in the in the nation. And so you see that, but you also just see kind of functional versions of that, you know, with a lot of just earth worshipy kind of things, with rain gardens and recycling and just uh, nature focused things that become for people who wouldn't call themselves witches uh like the thing like that's like the top of their like value list of why they're in minneapolis and how they look at their lives what they can give back and how they can contribute you know so something we look at and say hey we we kind of share that but not in the same ways you know Mm -hmm. we we worship the creator um and so we want to be stewards you know so we can kind of like make that a touch point for connecting with people, but still have kind of a clear line of distinction that we're not that either. (laughs) You know, that's a, that's a big challenge though. It's a, uh, it's an ongoing thing, but we try to weave it into the way we talk and, and talk about our values and preach sermons and, and things like that too. Wow. So, wow. Very unique. 
Uh, well, at this point, I'd love to transition, and, and uh, one of the things that we try to do with this podcast is get guys to kind of talk, talk about their, their wheelhouse or the thing mm-hmm. that in ministry that they just can't help but talk about. Sure. And uh, as I was thinking of, of the things that we could talk about with Chris Wachter, uh, the thing that came to my mind right away was this idea of biblical theology in the life of the church. And mm. I know you've influenced me uh, significantly and, and help open up the pages of Scripture in a way that I just haven't seen before by letting the Bible help you read the Bible, which mm. is something we'll talk mm. about in a little bit. Sure. Uh, but I'd like for you to just kind of start with describing how this was something that became influential in your life. Like, where did it begin? Yeah. Because I know yeah. when you were in seminary, mm. systematic theology was something that was really on the rise and everybody right. was talking about that. Right. And so right. how did the idea of biblical theology yeah. really become something that became central in you? Maybe you can offer some distinction between the two for those who might be yeah. less familiar with the nuance there. Sure. Yeah, basically biblical theology just being the, the idea of looking at the Bible um, as um, it's kind of a, a bunch of parts that make up a whole and so one of the big questions in our Bible study and our preparing of sermons or classes is how does the Bible read itself? We can come back to that. Um, but so we'd ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about, you know, any topic or as we might read about someone like Joshua, you know, or Moses or Zechariah or an event like the Exodus, you know, we would ask, how does the Bible help kind of maybe see that theme or that person as one of the threads that tie the whole story together? Mm-hmm. That's that's biblical theology in a nutshell, you know, kind of, even though even though there's more to say. Systematic would be more like taking the Bible, of course, but adding in things like um, experience or reason, you know, or like tradition or history, adding those kind of factors into our study of any individual topic, which may be the Bible itself, or it might be the doctrine of sin or baptism or the second coming, eschatology, things like that, and kind of factoring all those in. There's this traditional thing called the Wesleyan quadrilateral because it goes back to Wesley, uh, which kind of takes those four things that I mentioned and, and sort of sees them as a diamond, you know, to mm. approach a topic with, you know. And so uh, we might say the Bible's most important. Not everyone says that, you know, but I've, I've seen people like Wayne Grudem, for example, when I was reading his book back at Hope years ago, would put the Bible at the top of that diamond, you know, kind yeah. of intentionally. But uh, others wouldn't necessarily, but still, those are the four kind of factors that we... Um, that we bring, you know, to any study of any topic, yeah. you know, so, so the study of angels, you know, for example, what does the Bible have to say is one question. What does our experience have to say, uh, and others experiences, has anyone claimed to have seen them, you know, or demons for that matter as well, or interact with them at any level, or then what does church history have to say, tradition to these matters, and then reason, you know, like, as we apply kind of philosophical principles or reason-based principles or ways of thinking, to it, we we think along those terms as well, and then kind of mix it together, and voila, you've got kind of this study of angels. You know, that's more systematic, yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas biblical theology, a little bit different discipline. Both yeah. are very important. Yeah, certainly. But, so really helpful distinction. And so, how then yeah. did that the idea of biblical theology really take central uh, hold for you when you're? Yeah, studying? I'll try to just keep it concise. I mean, really, it happened during seminary, uh, and I'm kind of a. Uh, I just really like seeing how parts relate to the whole. I like big picture stuff and. It's hard for me to kind of wallow in the details. And um, so that, and that's actually something that other people like brothers and sisters in my life, my wife brings to kind of compliment me well, because I'm weaker in that area. But I think for me as a younger Christian, asking that question, um, how do the parts fit in relation to the whole? And, and one specific question I had in seminary going in that I wanted to answer is, how does the role of the, of the Old Testament law, you know, kind of fit now in the New Testament era when Paul says things like, you're not under the law anymore what does that mean and how far does he intend to take that or did he intend to take that when he wrote that 
many times in Romans and other places. Um, but broader again was this question of how do the parts fit? And um, and I remember one night specifically reading a commentary by I Howard Marshall on the books of First and Second Samuel. I think it was Second Samuel. He was making all these connections between David and Jesus, which I was privy to on some level, but just the sheer amount of the connections he was making was um, new to me and and revelatory. Like it was awesome to see all these things that David was kind of doing and saying that that typified the greater son of David who would come in his line genealogically, but also kind of in a resemblance way, like a, a, another shepherd king who would come uh, to be like him and to reign forever, you know, and to fulfill those promises God made to, to David and kind of threw him to the world. So for that, that was kind of this initial, whoa, maybe there's more here than I thought in terms of connections. And then um, I had a friend in, uh, at Southern Seminary during that time. We shared a lot of notes because he was getting some of the same things. I remember I had, I had a seminary prof uh, who was talking about there being two exoduses in the Bible, like the first one Israel experienced, but then the second spiritual one, the church experienced, which was completely new to me, but fascinating. And so um, I asked him, what else can I read about this? And he said, um, what did he say? It was something snarky like um, the Bible or something. I, I forgot what he said, but it, it was just something, you know, not very helpful, <laughs> but, but there was stuff and I, you know, and his class was helpful, but he was more of a liberal guy. Uh, the seminary itself had liberal leanings. And so the, the ends to which they were getting, you know, that they were asking those questions, but the ends that they got to were more liberal. And I thought that there was more of a conservative end, you know, a gospel centric end to, to the same kinds of things. And so that was kind of one of my goals in, in seminary. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, there's lots of books, lots of Bible reading and honest, just God at the end of the day, I think it was just him just kind of opening my eyes and others eyes that others, friends eyes that I had as we were sharing notes to seeing that, the Bible truly is one story, not a random collection of precepts yeah. and laws and people and stories. And which in seminary you tend to study that way, right? Because you almost have to. Right. It's a class on the first half of Isaiah or something. Yeah, like or it's Genesis very to zoned in. Yeah, exactly. So in one sense, you kind of have to. I'm not faulting anybody for that, um, myself included, because I do that too. You know, it's like you. It's there's a time to be in the details, but. That I think one of the unintended consequences of that is that you tend to see a bunch of trees rather than a forest. And that's certainly where I was in my early years. And then that changed mm. later in seminary. So Yeah. And and so just to bring it to the bare bones, the, the way that you've described it to me in the past has been you want to help people read the Bible the way the Bible reads the Bible. Right. So, so in right. other words, yeah, yeah. if an author in the New Testament is incorporating an Old Testament passage somehow. Yep we might look to that as instructive in the way that they're thinking about that Old Testament passage. Right. So elaborate on that right. a little bit or ex- explain it sure. for us. Well, you know, I had read to a, a book, I think it was pre-seminary, a book by Fee and Stewart, kind of this uh, benchmark book a lot of people still read called Reading the Bible for All It's Worth, a book on just kind of basic hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. And in there, they make this statement that, um, that I, I think I'm paraphrasing, but they say that an original text cannot mean to us what it did not mean to the first audience. And that was just this benchmark thing that they right. kind of plastered over the whole book. It was a, a starting point, a middle point, and an ending point, it felt like anyway, <laughs> yeah. in the book. And I remember taking that into a lot of my Bible reading as a younger Christian, kind of pre-seminary and so forth. And um, I became a Christian kind of around 18 or so, 16, 17, 18 in high school, you know, and, and Hope was kind of my first church. And so that was just kind of the way I started. And then, But then realizing later, and this gets to your question, Davis, the Bible doesn't operate on by those rules. Hmm. 
You know, it's, you look at how Paul reads the Old Testament, how Jesus quotes it, how he lives his life, you know, how John and, and James and all these people are writing. The author of Hebrews is a great example. How they're quoting the Old Testament. They don't operate by those rules. They clearly, not just intend but or imply, but they, they actually mean to say that the text does mean more than Moses originally intended it to mean. He, he couldn't have intended Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't know him yet, you know, by name. Or they, they could have been whispers of him, of course, they were looking ahead to, and I think there were. But if God is is the ultimate author of Scripture, you know, not, not Moses or Isaiah or Zechariah or David, you know, then the Spirit, and I think in Second Peter 1, it talks about this, how the Spirit carried along the prophets as they wrote to kind of intend more than they were originally sensing, you know, mm-hmm. or, or meaning to that original audience. And so... If Christ is the ultimate meaning, then this is kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but then I think that we have to apply the way, and this is what I was coming to understand, or at least feeling the tension of, you know, early on, the Fee and Stewart statement, you know, and then looking at Jesus and Paul and, and the author of Hebrews and saying, but they're not applying that rule mm-hmm. to the way that, that they're writing Holy Scripture and inspired. Like, in other words, God isn't, God isn't following that rule himself. Wow. You know, like he's, he's intending more. So the, then the question is, can we do that too? And that's where these two camps split. You know, and Fee and Stewart and others would kind of take one way that, that the author of Hebrews had the Holy Spirit. He could kind of have this special inspired way, you know, of going about reading the Bible, but we cannot do that. Or the other side, which is the way, as you look at the early church fathers and, and, and other people have read the Bible really for 2,000 years, they take that more as a launch pad, you know, or a stepping stone to reading the Bible in the same manner in ways that maybe weren't explicit to like the apostles when they wrote the new Testament, but it's, it's in the same manner hmm. that they read the old Testament as like an example. Cause we have the same spirit. The earlier church fathers would say right. the same spirit Paul had the same spirit that James and John and the author of Hebrews had. We, we can read the Bible uh, in, in the same manner in that kind of typological or symbolic or Jesus anticipating manner. And, um, and the benefits are almost immeasurable. Hmm. And as you have dug deeper into this the last decade or so, um, I'm sure you've encountered some pushback here and there. Maybe you've you've encountered somebody in that Fee and Stewart camp. What are some things that you might say just to encourage those who who would find themselves saying, "Oh, this is this is entering dangerous theological territory. We shouldn't yeah. interpret the Bibles this way." Yeah. How might how might you yeah. encourage them with what you're saying? I guess I'd acknowledge first of all acknowledge that that maybe there's some some goodness in the hesitancy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think that you know conservatives historically in trying to kind of hedge around the scriptures and protect it from kind of this liberal. Uh, you know, statement of the Bible can mean whatever you want it to mean. Right. You know, that like that idea, there was a good kind of pendulum swing, you know, away from that. And so I think the conservative attempt to protect from that, you know, in saying and making this kind of statement of, okay, let's just really allow the scripture to speak to us and not us to scripture, you know, and to kind of form it into our image. That was a good thing. But I think the pendulum swung too far, I would say, to this point of where we're, we're not reading the Bible in the way it reads itself. Right. You know, And I think that that really is, it's albeit a little bit circular, but I think it is a powerful, hard to argue against uh, like statement or position on hermeneutics, You know, where you're saying, let's just look at how the Bible reads itself. And most people I find just haven't really just searched that out yet or they haven't thought about it in those terms before. And once they do, I... 
I have yet to find someone, I guess, that has really strong arguments against that. Because if you're if you're approaching it as a biblicist, you know, as someone who wants to read the Bible and cares about God's word, then it, it's hard to kind of come around and say, well, I read so and so, and you know, my grid makes more sense, you know, or something, or you know, Moses' original intention, you know, even though the way that Paul quotes it here in First Corinthians ten is different, but maybe Moses had a better, like, no one's going to say that, you right. know, like had a better idea. And so I think that just help, really helping people see that um, is a huge part of it. But acknowledging that um, it can't mean anything either. Like it, it can, it's still hedged in because biblical theology says it means what the Bible says it means. And it means Christ and him crucified and him raised. Mm-hmm. Kind of a la Luke 24 mm-hmm. when Jesus opens the Old Testament on Easter Sunday. So it's like one of the first things he does after his resurrection. He's walking on that road to Emmaus. Hardly any time has passed since, you know, he first appeared to Mary and so forth. And he's with these two disciples. And one of the first things he does is open the Old Testament and say, here I am in all the scriptures Mm. and all of Moses, all the Psalms, all the prophets, which is like an idiom for all the Old Testament. Here I am in all these things. And it says their eyes were opened, I think, to see who he was right there because they didn't recognize him at first. But also I think that implies really open to see the word, the written word and the word in the flesh at the same time and, and to kind of see his identity afresh in all the scriptures that it was really all about him in the first place. And, and that now that he's here, he's disclosing that Yeah, he's like solving riddles, you know, he's solving mysteries. This is what the scriptures say, right? He's like the great mystery solver. It's like the haze has lifted or the fog's been blown away. The veil's been lifted, right? right. From second Corinthians three. So that now we can see clearly verses like just through a veil, like the Pharisees that says, like, like Paul says that, right? Like those that don't read the Old Testament through a Christ-centered lens, essentially, are kind of like seen through a veil. Hmm. They see foggily, maybe some kind of half-truths or some truths, but until that veil is lifted through Christ, they can't truly understand it uh, in this new covenant anticipating way. Yeah. Are there other passages kind of off the cuff here? that maybe speak to some of those big picture covenant connections and, and how if someone's wearing the lens that you're describing, they might read it a little bit differently. Sure. Yeah. So you and I have talked a bit, a bit about this, but I think part of um, part of my journey too, just theologically has been trying to reconcile how the covenants fit together, you know, and um, I guess for just for time's sake, just kind of stating it this way, just saying that um, I felt like there needed to be a camp in between traditional covenantalism so seeing the Bible as one covenant with different expressions mm-hmm. and dispensationalism, right. which just dissects the thing like it's only a hundred years old anyway. And so it's problematic, you know, but, <laughs> but I think, I think there is, I think, and there's different words for this today. And I think throughout history, uh, it's kind of like a, almost a modified Lutheranism or a Luther like approach or kind of a, a progressive way of seeing it that in that way, a progressive dispensational way. But I never use that because it's too confusing, but just a way to see that there's two distinct covenants. That there, that there really is, and the way the Bible approaches itself is that there is an old way that's passed up by the new way. So the new way is not just like old 2.0, you know, but instead it's a brand new way of covenanting with God that, that changes the rules. And this is how Hebrews speaks, you know, when it says in Hebrews 7, I think it is, where Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. And he says, right in context there, and this is a, this is a confusing, but a, a really helpful, it still is to this day, for me, in, in the moment, as I was wrestling with these questions, a helpful text when it says, when you change the, the priesthood, you necessarily change the law as well. 
Hmm. And so we don't, we don't think in those terms necessarily. We can think, oh, the priesthood changed. Jesus was descended from Judah, not Levi. I get that. It's a little bit different. He's the son of David, and that's important for, for these different reasons. But understand that the law changes with it, that it's kind of like in God's eyes, it's all lumped together, uh, that the whole thing changes. So like he's a priest then, not after the law, meaning like not like based on genealogical descent, which is a law thing, right? Mm-hmm. And But I think the author of Hebrews lumps all the law into that. So he's not like an extension of do this and you will live, right. kind of to pull from Paul's argument in Galatians 3 as well. It's not do this and you will live. Rather, he's a priest after the order of an indestructible life. Like Melchizedek typifies back in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 gets at this. It's a major thematic theological thread in the Old Testament that Hebrews is tapping into saying there's a different thread. It's a New Testament. It's a new covenant based on different rules. And Jesus is the culmination of that so that it's by grace we're saved. So it's not about the law. It's been, it's becoming obsolete. Actually, it says in Hebrews 8, 13, I think it is that the Old Testament law is the Old Testament itself is a lesser covenant that has grown obsolete because right when you talk about a new thing, the old thing starts to become obsolete. Hmm. And that was way back in Jeremiah 31, I think, which was around 700 BC or something, whenever he, uh, it might be a little bit uh, too old, but anyway, whenever he spoke, uh, that's a long time before Christ, when the old is already kind of being anticipated to become obsolete and, and to become a passing thing to give way to a greater glory right. that is Christ. So I'd love to hear you describe how, how these realities and kind of seeing some of these things has influenced the way that you preach or the way that you prepare a sermon because certainly it has not led you to unhitch the Old Testament as some people sure. have recently no, for sure. said. No, uh, no. I mean, you, you yeah. in fact, you preach through Old Testament books regularly. All the time, yeah. And, and so how has the, this way of reading influenced the way that yeah. you preach? I, I think it's just, and this actually goes back to what I was saying to start the, our, our conversation with um, concern about how I would preach every Sunday when I was uh, a kid in my mid-20s, you know, just kind of thinking through these things theologically, but also just practically, right? As we were handlers of the word and teachers, like how, how do I be distinctly gospel-centric and Jesus-centered if the whole Bible isn't about the gospel. Hmm. If you believe that, you you can't be gospel-centered in everything you say, right? And just, it's kind of a simple thing, but you can't be. But coming to understand that everything is about the gospel then not only like freed me up to, to be what I wanted to be, which was a Jesus-centered, gospel-centric, seeing the forest, not just the trees kind of leader and kind of teacher, but it also helped me to realize I'm teaching the Bible faithfully, I think. And it gave me a treasure store of metaphors and illustrations and symbols and allegories and all these things to get at the gospel in a way that the New Testament actually doesn't. You know, so what I mean by that is that the Old Testament might use an image, you know, for saved by grace, not by works, or an image of what happened on the cross that the New Testament agrees with, of course, uh, and complements, but doesn't say explicitly. Hmm. And, and I, I just found that as a person, uh, just a Christian man, but as a pastor too, like when I preach Old Testament books, a lot of my church just, and they, they just love story. Like, I, you know, I think we've seen almost more fruit come from series in Zechariah and Judges and Genesis and Ecclesiastes than we have in Galatians. And Galatians was amazing. You know, it says the same thing. It's just, uh, we've seen in first Corinthians, we did that one years ago, uh, amazing, amazing study. But we've just seen a lot, a lot of, um, I don't know if more fruit's the, the best phrase for it, but kind of special fruit that has come from that where people have seen 
the same types of New Testament gospel encouragements, you know, about who God is and, and who we are and what Jesus has done for us in a way that, you know, paints it victoriously, you know, and like definitively or, mm-hmm. or something. So one, one example that a lot of, a lot of us go back to a lot is the story of David and Goliath and, you know, biblical theology would say David there is a type of Christ. He's, you know, a, a whisper, he's an anticipation. And the Goliath then in, in all of Israel's enemies and in the old Testament, though they're real historical problems <laughs> that God helps Israel overcome and, and fights their battles for them. They're still not the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is sin. Genesis 3 says as much. The Old Testament says as much, right alongside these stories that are happening. So if that's the case, then the Goliaths and the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Philistines of the Old Testament are types of sin. And if that's the case, then then when they're defeated and the, the manner by which God defeats them, you're seeing a picture of that's what happened on the cross. That was a whisper. And so if it's if it's definitive victory, if it's entirely by God's hand victory, if it's um, you know, if there's some suffering that comes along with it, you know, if it takes time, all, all these things can kind of speak into our experience too, as a Christian. Uh, and the New Testament might come right alongside that and kind of complement it prepositionally, you know, and say some statement like, like saved by grace, not by works, you know, or like Christ's victory is imputed to us. Like Christ's victory is shared with us. Like in first Corinthians 15, we see that story wise in the old Testament. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I think just the compliments, you, you asked the question, how has it helped? Like, I think um, it, it just comes back to there being more ways to talk about the one gospel than if you didn't read the Bible this way, you know, and not that that's the first reason. I mean, ultimately I do this because I think it's the right way. I think the Bible is doing this, you know, so we want to be a faithful Bible teacher. And so we read it the way that it reads itself. But I think secondarily, it just, it gives this, treasure store of metaphors and symbols and illustrations about the same gospel that we wouldn't have and about the same Christ, you know, that we wouldn't have, uh, otherwise. Wow. So, wow. And in addition to preaching, how have you, uh, sought to kind of disperse this form of learning and reading the Bible to the greater congregation? What are some other things you're doing? In addition to that, are there resources that you might recommend to, to future church planners or guys who are already on the ground sure. uh, who are hearing what you're saying and they're, and they're really kind of nodding along and going, man, I'd like to grow in my ability to do yeah. this. I got to start with that one first. So the, the question about resources, uh, I always encourage people to read the early church fathers hmm. and, and there are great uh, commentaries you can get out there edited by Tom, Thomas Oden, uh, who um, has done great work in this area uh, as a church, as a pastor, as a practitioner, as a theologian, but also a historian, basically a church historian. Uh, You can read his stuff. I think it's called the Ancient uh, Bible Commentator Series. Just you can kind of Google that. You can find it. Uh, I got a lot of, it's, I mean, like anything, these guys aren't infallible, right? We're not infallible. They're not infallible. But I think that, and Thomas Oden argues this in some of his writings too, that what we've done is we placed more emphasis on modern commentaries these days than we have in early commentary in, in the early writings, like from Irenaeus, you know, or, or someone like that. And I think that's um, without going too far, maybe flipping that around because we don't want to put, you know, too much emphasis on the early ones either. I think there is a way to do that, you know, and to consult an ancient commentator as you consult a modern one, just kind of have, have a, a variety of voices inform 
how you read them. because they're more inclined to read the Bible, I think, in the way the Bible reads itself. Yeah. Not that they're perfect and they get a bit crazy allegorical sometimes that you got to rein that in a little bit maybe, <laughs> but they do, I find, have a lot of things to say that are, I mean, you read a modern commentator alongside those guys and it's just like crickets. Like they never touch on some of these things and never see them. Mm-hmm. And one of the dangers to not seeing Christ in all the scriptures is, is just classic moralism classic legalism and so it's a defensive way a protective way to teach the bible and i think the early church fathers knew that and so you know the the point then to david and goliath and you know in first samuel is not be like be brave like david it's the ultimate david came to be brave for you and so if anything in that story we're like the israelites in the sideline watching david fight and you know kind of receiving the benefits of that victory it's exactly what happens for christians right and so it's a restful <clears throat> gazing, watching, you know, like, like God says so much in the Old Testament, watch me fight for you, be silent hmm. and watch me fight for you. Same thing happened there story-wise, right? In, in uh, 1 Samuel 17. And then in the New Testament, we see that fulfilled is we see people look and gaze at the cross, but they are certainly not bearing the sins of the world. And they're certainly not helping Jesus die, hmm. right? And so I think that that, to see those connections um, really pounds home that grace idea. And so I, I would say for resources, uh, looking look at the early church fathers, um, Thomas Oden edited that series. I would, you know, And uh, Christopher Hall wrote an article that touches on some of Thomas Oden's work too called The Habits of Highly Effective Bible Readers. You can Google that. It's a CT archives uh, type thing too that kind of summarizes what we can learn from the way the early church read the Bible. And so I'd point people uh, to that as well. And then your other question. Yeah. How have you sought to kind of give this away to your congregation outside of preaching? Are there additional things that you're doing to equip your congregation with these things? Um, Other books, uh, a guy, a book we use in a class we teach actually. So part of the answer to that question is to say we teach a class, Mm -hmm. a semester long class on biblical theology, which could be easily be a year. We just for time's sake made it a semester. And that's open to everyone? Anyone for sure. Yeah. We've had outside Hiawatha people take it before. So, um, which is great. Uh, so it's a fall class, September to December, and we cover all the genres of kind of a genre based class. So we'll, we introduce the whole issue. Um, it's kind of front loaded with some reading, but then we get into the, the genres. So a few weeks in history, a few weeks in poetry, a few weeks in prophecy, <clears throat> wisdom, literature, prophecy, things like that, all the way through the rest of the New Testament as well. So uh, we do that. And I think just it's, you know, our vision of preaching is long term. So when we think about equipping our people, like we're, when I preach, I, I want to teach how to read the Bible. And I think that I, I think we're doing that as a church. We're not just preaching the text and saying, this is the Christ word that God has for you in this passage, but we're also saying this is how to do it. And so <clears throat> it equips people then to do, to ask the same types of questions, the right questions about a passage um, and not the wrong ones or more, maybe more than misleading ones and, and things too. Um, and one book, two more, a more modern book, Michael Lawrence. Uh, you mentioned, I think, his title. I don't know if you were intending to do that or not. But Biblical Theology uh, in the Life of the Church, I think, is the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nine Marks book, I think. He's an elder, I think, at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist. But he, he's one of the guys I've, I've read more recently, a modern guy, more modern kind of present-day academic, uh, but also a practitioner as an elder and a, and a teaching pastor, a guy who sees the distinction in the covenants, Um, more than um, that robust covenantalism Mm. that sees they're just kind of one covenant in the Bible with different expressions, which 
leads you to see the law then, or a third of the law, a traditional reformed or Calvinistic person would say the moral law as continuing into the New Testament era, which creates problems uh, for conditionalism today in an unconditional uh, covenant, a new covenant that we're in now. But Michael Lawrence, and I would agree, sees uh, different kinds of covenants in the Bible, conditional covenants and unconditional covenants, um, Christ-anticipating covenants, grace-filled ones, and ones that actually are based on our ability to observe law Hmm. and to not worship other gods and to uh, essentially be perfect. And so you see that kind of theme fail Israel miserably, you know, but if you see the difference then, then the break is more at the cross, not as a covenantalist would say at the garden, you know, when God made that covenant with, with Adam, ultimately this covenant of grace, they call it that begins kind of right there. Um, with different expressions, the break is more at, at the cross. As again, Jesus seems to teach at the Last Supper, Hebrews 9, you know, when it says a death had to occur hmm. to make that New Testament valid, you know, to kind of bring it into history and, and us, the beneficiaries, to receive the benefits that had to happen. Yeah. And so it makes the break there more rather than anywhere else earlier in, in the story. Yeah. And so I, I commend that book or encourage that anyone to read that book to, to get more of an idea of how the covenants fit. Certainly, it is phenomenal. Uh, we're, we're about to run out of time, but I'd like to ask you just one more question because uh, I know a few people who currently are maybe in a dry spell or know that it is always going to happen to us at some mm. point in time when when we're just reading our Bibles, when we're just feeling like, man, I just can't get through. Yeah. Do you have just a word of encouragement to anyone who, who might be in mm. that phase mm. right now? Uh, I'd say just read it. You know, like I think reading the Bible begets reading the Bible. Hmm. You know, like the worst thing to do is take a break, <laughs> you know. So I think just just read it, you know. And and th- this is the pastoral, you know, this goes back to what we've been talking about. But I think the more we see Christ in the scriptures, the more he's the hero. And if he truly is the answer, if he truly is the point, if he truly is the climax, if he is the rescuer, if he is God's plan A, hmm. if he's what we need and we don't need ourselves, you know, and, and more to do, then I think we're going to find more joy, you know, in, in these stories. And uh, so I just say, read the Bible, how it reads itself. And that, that's a lifetime of learning. And there's obviously much more to say in terms of the how to doing that. But in terms of my story, in terms of how I try to lead and preach um, and how I know I've been encouraged by many who've been before me in the same way, others I've read, that, that's been the most edifying thing by far, Bible study wise, I've ever learned. Mm. Uh, is read the Bible as though Jesus is the hero and that, that he's there in the text in ways that um, maybe you're not starting your Bible study with those preconceived notions, right? Like maybe it's hidden, but assume that God wants to speak to you too. Like I would say that to people, like he's not hiding, like God wants to speak and his ultimate word is Christ. The ultimate thing he wants to say to you is Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again in all the scripture, whether implicitly or explicitly. Uh, helps to tell that one amazing story. Hmm. Well, there you have it, folks. That wraps up another episode of the Midwest Church Planting Project. We want to give a special thanks and shout out to Hope Hymns. These guys are incredible. It's what you're hearing right now in your speakers and at the beginning of the episode. They, they take old, old hymns and they slap some new melodies on them and make them sound fantastic. You can find them on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else you get your music. So please avail yourself of that opportunity. Hey, we've been loving hearing from you guys. Simply search the Midwest Church Planting Project on Twitter or Instagram, and you can drop us all your questions, your comments, and your snide remarks. We love it all. 
Thanks again for listening to the Midwest Church Planning Project. We'll see you back here the week after next. Yeah.